Well, good morning, South Winds. As you have just heard, uh, Easter is only two weeks away, and uh, we are just praying here that God is going to use all of us together uh, to bring as many people as possible to this place to hear the good news of Easter. And we want you to be a part of that. We want to help you to be a part of that. And so we, as we do every year, are providing uh, Easter invite cards for you just to have a way to hand something to a, a friend or a family member, a neighbor, co-worker, whoever, and just tell them you'd love to see them join us as we worship on this Easter Sunday. Uh, these are available out in the lobby, and feel free to take uh, as many as you can use. We'd be happy for you to have them. Uh, also, we want to encourage you, if you uh, have a place where you know you can put a poster up, those are also available out in the lobby, so please pick one of, of those up. And on top of that, I want to ask you to do something really special, okay? I'm going to ask you uh, if you would make a commitment to pray every day for the next two weeks, just two weeks, for our Easter services. Would you be willing to do that? I would encourage you, if you would, to write it down somewhere uh, on your program where you'll see it so you don't forget, you know, when you leave here. And I'm going to do even more than that for you. I'm going to give you some things you can pray for, okay, just to help you out. These are not the only things that you might pray for, but these are just some places to start. And they all come from Colossians 4, verses 2 through 6, which would be a great passage of Scripture for you to read and to, to pray over. Here they are. Pray that God would open doors in the lives of people that you know. Just start asking God for that as you get ready to invite them. And then pray that God would be guiding our pastors, all of our leadership, that we would plan a service where we can make the message as clear as possible. And then pray that we would just have many grace-filled conversations in the next few weeks, that all of us uh, will have opportunities to share the gospel. Those are some things you can begin to pray for. Uh, I think as you do that, God's going to give you other ideas that, to pray for. But I just want to encourage all of us together to be praying that God will use what happens on this very special Sunday just to make a real impact uh, in our community around this region. Well, if your Bibles aren't open already, please get them open. And our message today is called Keep On Keeping On. Uh, we are in Acts chapter 14. And this is a chapter that really is about perseverance. It's about endurance. It's about what you need to know when you need to keep moving ahead and you just don't think you can take another step. Now, last week we were in Acts 13 and we started looking at the very first missionary trip ever. What the Antioch church did had never been done before. A church had never before intentionally sent out missionaries like they did. It's the first time it's ever happened. And we, we saw the very first half of that journey last week. And today, we're going to see how it concludes. And just keep this in mind. It's interesting how God works, isn't it? God put two very, very different people together for this trip. Uh, Barnabas, as we've uh, seen over uh, many chapters in Acts, was the encourager. Barnabas was voted most huggable in high school, I'm sure. Everybody loved Barnabas. Barnabas was this generous guy. Remember back in Acts 4 how he sold his property so he could give it to the church for ministry. And then there's Paul, who's killing people. And God put them together. I mean, because of Jesus, who he is and, and what he had done in their lives, they are serving together. And so they go out, and last week as they, they went out on this trip, we saw that we should too expect uh, three things when we are sent. We should expect different responses to the gospel. Uh, we should expect that there's going to be challenges, relational, physical, all kinds of challenges. And then we should expect that God is going to open doors. That's what happened in Acts 13. That's what God still does with us today. And now in Acts 14, we're going to add this theme of perseverance over the top of what we saw last week. Because you're going to see in Acts 14 that Paul and Barnabas, they just keep doing what they had been doing back in Acts 13. Now they're going to have to persevere. In Acts 14, you're going to see that God keeps opening doors and uh, the Apostle Paul and Barnabas, they keep facing these painful challenges and dangerous opposition. The Holy Spirit keeps working. They keep sharing the gospel any way they can with anyone they can. And they keep having different responses to the gospel. Now, I think we're supposed to learn about perseverance in these stories because in the very last letter that Paul writes, it's called 2 Timothy. Uh, he writes to Timothy, who's actually from Lystra, 
about this trip. And Paul in 2 Timothy speaks about his sufferings on this journey and uses those to encourage Timothy to persevere. Here's what he writes, 2 Timothy 3, uh, verses 10 through 12. You, however, know all about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, faith, patience, love, endurance, persecutions, sufferings. What kind of things happened to me in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra? The persecutions I endured. Yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Now, Paul and Barnabas... They just give us this amazing example of what it looks like to persevere as a follower of Christ, to just keep on keeping on. And there have always been people, maybe you've known some, who walk away from Jesus when life gets hard. Acts 14 shows us how we can persevere for the sake of the gospel in the power of God. I want to show you some maps again this week to kind of keep you in perspective of what's going on. This is the map we looked at last week. It shows the journey that, that Paul and Barnabas made in Acts uh, chapter 13. And just to remind you, they started out in Antioch in Syria, and they journeyed uh, down to Cyprus across 60 miles of the Mediterranean Sea. And in Cyprus, they saw a Roman governor become a Christian. Uh, then they sailed again uh, across the water to Perga, stopped in Pisidian Antioch, where Paul preached and where Paul had many people uh, come to Christ but also many people who opposed him, who didn't like what he had to say. And at the end of that, they threw him out of town, and he left. Now, here's where we're going today. This next map shows it's 90 miles from Pisidian Antioch to Iconium, and then we're going to go 20 miles from there uh, to Lystra. And then from Lystra, it's another 60 miles to Derby. And I just want to point something out that may not uh, sink in for us today when we hear 90, 20, 60 miles, no big deal, right? You say, I commute that every day. Um, They are walking, all right? And they are not smooth roads. You have to be in good shape to travel with Paul. It was hard journeying going on here. This is mountainous terrain. There were no Starbucks. There were no McDonald's along the way. And on top of that, there were no law enforcement people to keep things safe. There were bandits everywhere, people who would not only rob all your stuff, but they would take your life. And and so this is a very, very dangerous, difficult thing that that Paul and Barnabas are doing. And then I want to show you one more slide, because instead of just going from Derby to Tarsus, you see that's Paul's hometown there, not very far from where he grew up. And then from Tarsus to Antioch, which is where his home currently is, not very far from there. Instead of Paul just going from Derby to Tarsus and back to Antioch, what does he do? Well, he goes all the way back. He retraces his step. He revisits all of these places so that he can build into the lives of these people. In other words, he just keeps persevering. He keeps working. He's not going to quit. I think God's calling us to persevere. How do we see that? Well, there's three things I want you to see. And the first way I want you to see is is in verses 1 through 7, God calls us to persevere when we're successful and when we're opposed. So in good times and in bad times, we persevere. Now, again, just to keep it in front of you, here's another map to show you where we're going to be in verses 1 through 7. Paul makes that trip from Pisidian Antioch to the city of Iconium. Look at verse 1. At Iconium, Paul and Barnabas went as usual into the Jewish synagogue. There they spoke so effectively that a great number of Jews and Gentiles believed. Now, Iconium was this commercial and agricultural center. It was on an important east-west trade route. Lots of people lived there, big city. We see Paul's pattern of proclaiming the gospel to large, influential cities. Paul knows this is a strategic uh, uh, issue. He knows that by reaching cities, he can reach the surrounding region. And I want to point this out because today a lot of Christians um, are city negative, and we shouldn't be. I'm not saying you have to live in the city, but you shouldn't be negative about the city. Even if you don't like the city, you should realize the significance of the city. Why do cities matter? And they really do in the Bible. The Bible is far more a book about cities than it is about the country and about smaller towns. 
Why do cities matter? Well, the answer is really simple, because people are in cities. God loves cities because God loves people. Think about it this way. There is more imago dei, the image of God, per square inch in cities than anywhere else. That's where the people are. And so Paul is aware of this. We see it all through Acts. Uh, Paul doesn't ignore the villages. In fact, we're going to see him going to a smaller place today. But he focuses on cities because he's being strategic. Villages can be reached through the city. But it's hard to reach a city from a village. And so here in chapter 14, we again see Paul starting in the synagogue. Again, he takes the Old Testament. He points these Jewish people to Jesus from God's word. Luke tells us that a great number of people believed. Now, this is impressive what Paul is accomplishing. But what's more impressive here is Paul's courage. Paul knows from experience that going to a synagogue often does not turn out well for him. In fact, it's been a pretty negative experience just before this in Pisidian Antioch. He's traveled 90 miles to get to Iconium, and he goes right back into this war zone, right back to the synagogue. And it just calls us to ask ourselves, do we give up the first time we face opposition? Do we just quit? Do we just back off? Paul had courage to persevere. Verses 2 through 4 say, But the Jews who refused to believe stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So Paul and Barnabas spent considerable time there, speaking boldly for the Lord, who confirmed the message of his grace by enabling them to do miraculous signs and wonders. The people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews, others with the apostles. So these, these legalists, they're just dripping poison into people's ears, probably, probably saying things like, you know, sinners aren't qualified to receive God's grace. And they're right. Sinners aren't qualified. But that's the good news of the gospel, isn't it? That God makes us qualified. Paul's going to write uh, later on in the letter to the Colossians that it is the Father who has qualified us to share in the saints' inheritance in the light. See, no one is qualified. But God, through the work of his son, Jesus Christ, saves us, forgives us, redeems us. He brings us into his family. He qualifies us. And these people don't like this message. And so they oppose it. Now, again, we should expect opposition. We keep seeing it in Acts. There's success, and then there's opposition. It's all through this book. And I want you to notice, maybe you caught it as I read it. How do Paul and Barnabas respond to opposition? Verse 3 says, they spent considerable time there. Did you notice that? They get opposed, and then they stay. Is that your pattern? They get opposed, and then they stay. I mean, Paul is amazing. He's, he's probably this real little guy, but he never quits. He won't give up. He just keeps going. Luke says they were speaking boldly. And we see another aspect of perseverance. The idea behind this word boldly is, is trust in the Lord. This is where perseverance comes from, trusting, relying in the Lord. They can stay because they're relying on God as they preach the message of his grace. And notice that the gospel is a word of God's grace. It is a message about God's grace. You see, what is it that makes these legalists mad enough when they hear Paul to try to kill him? And the answer is simple. It's grace. Do you understand that grace enrages some people? See, the idea here that someone could inherit God's kingdom by grace. These people don't like it. And before you judge them and before you look down at them for their, their narrow perspective, you need to understand something about all of us. The default mode of every human heart, your heart, my heart, say my heart. The default mode of our hearts is work righteousness. Works righteousness. That's where we all are apart from the grace of God. We want to earn it. We don't like this idea that you know, we just get something given to us. We want to earn it. We want to deserve it. And Paul is giving a message that says, no, it's by grace. He says to these people, you don't have to become a Jew first to become a Christian. This doesn't matter what your past looks like. It's the Father who qualifies us. And it's just a fascinating thing. Grace tends 
to give people either an unspeakable sense of relief and joy. Amen? Or it makes them angry. They get hostile. See, aren't you glad today that God receives us by grace? See, we don't have to qualify. The door is wide open. Anyone can come in. It is grace. Verse 4 continues to highlight one of the effects of the gospel, and that is that the gospel divides. The gospel always divides. The gospel really does one of two things. It unites and divides at the same time. And quite honestly, if the gospel isn't uniting and dividing, it's probably not the gospel that's being preached. It's something else. Um, The gospel unites people who otherwise wouldn't ever be united. They're different. Uh, The gospel unites people from all races and tribes and languages. I mean, look around this room. Are there some people here you would never hang out with? I mean, if you weren't a Christian, right? Well, they're thinking the same thing about you. (laughs) The gospel just brings us together, doesn't it? Because it's by grace. It's not about who we are. It's about who Jesus is. But at the same time, the gospel also divides people because the gospel is a sword and it divides the human race. It always has. It always will. These people here show that by choosing teams. You know, some side with the Jews, some with the apostles. And the opposition grows and it it, it deteriorates into this physical threat that's happening. Look at verses 5 through 7. It says, There was a plot afoot among the Gentiles and Jews together with their leaders to mistreat them and stone them. But they found out about it and fled to the Lecaonian cities of Lystra and Derby, and to the surrounding country where they continued to preach the good news. So they're doing good things. They're preaching grace. They're performing miracles, healing people, and people want to kill them. Now, we have seen the need for courage to persevere. We've seen the need to trust in the Lord. But I want to show you a third factor that may surprise you. Uh, We see here the need for discretion. Or if you like the word prudence, you could put this down. Notice before when they faced opposition, they stayed, right? But this time, they flee. Uh, If I could put it this way, they were brave but not stupid. Sometimes we are more faithful when we remain. Sometimes we need to relocate. And there's really no rule for this. And we see both things happening at different times in the book of Acts. Sometimes God uses their suffering. Sometimes they leave so they can live to preach another day. And all we can say here is that the way you figure this out in your own life is you just got got to pray to God for wisdom. That's James 1. And then you trust him to guide you and lead you. This is just living with wisdom. Sometimes perseverance is about staying alive. See, God also calls us to persevere in another way, a second way. Let me show you this. This is in verses 8 through 21. We are to persevere when we face genuine persecution. Now, in America today, I think Christians need to be careful about claiming persecution every time someone isn't nice to us. You know, there are some genuine cases of persecution in our country. Around the world, there's even more. Maybe there will be more persecution in the future here in our country. But we know that persecution has happened over time. It still happens, and it may happen in our lifetime. It is happening here in the text. Again, I want you to look at the map and see Lystra, and Derby are in the province of Lycaonia. Uh, Lystra's about 20 miles south of Iconium, and then Derby's another 60 miles southeast of Lystra. Now, Lystra's very different than Iconium. It was a small community, had a military outpost. Uh, some people have said, if you want to uh, imagine it, just kind of think about the Wild West. It's kind of out on the frontier. And The people here, one commentator says, were generally uneducated, barbarous, and superstitious people. And what we're going to see in these verses is that Paul preaches the gospel, but he does it in a very different way than he's done it before. We're going to see Paul connecting with his audience. And I want you to be aware of this as we go through Acts. We're seeing this. In Jewish context, Paul always starts with Scripture. He starts with the Old Testament. But here, when he's preaching to pagan Gentiles, he doesn't start with what they see in Scripture. He starts with what they see in creation. They don't know the Scripture. 
They've never read the Bible. And so he starts with what they know, creation, and he makes that the the starting point for the conversation. And then he tries out of that to preach the gospel to them. Now, from what we can tell, there wasn't much of a Jewish population of any size in Lystra. There's no synagogue that's mentioned. Uh, We do know that a few Jewish people were there. In fact, Timothy, we know about Timothy. Uh, He's going to become an important leader in the early church. Timothy, his mother, his grandmother who were converted, they are here in Lystra. This is Timothy's hometown. And, And we see here in this section that Paul is being both faithful and flexible in evangelism. Both things are important. Uh, Paul is not editing the gospel, but he is very aware of his audience. And so, and so Paul doesn't quote the Bible here uh, because the Lystrans don't know it. But this doesn't mean he's ignoring Scripture. Everything he says is consistent with the Bible. And, and then notice this too. He, he doesn't go straight to Jesus. And the reason for this is something that missionaries have learned down through the centuries When you come to polytheistic people and you tell them straight off about Jesus, what they often tend to do is they just put Jesus into their pantheon of other gods. They just add Jesus to the other gods that they already have. And Paul seems to recognize this. And so what he does is he tries to establish, first of all, the fact that there is only one God, one God who is the creator of everything. And then from there, begin to tell the story of the Bible. Uh, This all shows us something very important about sharing our faith with people. There is not a one-size-fits-all gospel presentation for everyone. There is one gospel, only one gospel, but there's not only one particular approach that works with everybody. See, sharing the gospel is complex because people are complex. Wouldn't you agree that people are complex? I mean, how many of you are sitting next to a really complex person? Would you raise your hand? And how many of them are raising their hand about you, right? See, we're all different, and so we need to be aware of that. Maybe you could think of it this way. When you share your faith, you need to know the Bible and know people. And some of us are good on one or the other, and it's just not as effective unless we're, unless we're growing in our, our awareness and knowledge of both of those things. This is what Paul is doing. Acts 13, he's talking to really religious people. Acts 14, he's talking to superstitious people, to polytheistic pagan, pluralistic people. Let's watch how he does this. Beginning in verse 8. In Lystra there sat a man crippled in his feet who was lame from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul as he was speaking. Paul looked directly at him, saw that he had faith to be healed, and called out, stand up on your feet. At that, the man jumped up and began to walk. And so this man who's lame, he's been lame his whole life, he's listening to Paul. Paul, through the Holy Spirit, has insight into the spiritual realm, and he sees that he has faith to be healed, and so he commands him to step up. And this man jumps up, Luke says, and he walks. It's a demonstration of the power of God. And people hear about this, and it's an amazing miracle. But as a result of this miracle, the people in Lystra draw the wrong conclusions. Look at verse 11. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they shouted in the Lycaonian language, the gods have come down to us in human form. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul they called Hermes because he was the chief speaker. The priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought bulls and wreaths to the city gates because he and the crowd wanted to offer sacrifices to them. And most commentators uh, see here that what's going on is that Paul and Barnabas, they don't know this obscure dialect of the, uh, of the Lystrans, and so they don't understand what they're, what they're saying at first. They don't get it until they see this priest of Zeus come out, and he's bringing garlands, and he's bringing bulls to sacrifice. Then they realize what's going on. Verse 14, but when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of this, They tore their clothes and rushed out into the crowd shouting, Men, why are you doing this? We too are only men, human like you. We are bringing you good news, telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God who made heaven and earth and sea and everything in them. In the past, he let all nations go their own way. Yet he has not left himself without testimony. He has shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their seasons. He provides you with plenty of food and fills your hearts with joy. 
even with these words, they had difficulty keeping the crowd from sacrificing to them. Now, this idolatrous worship, it horrifies Paul and Barnabas, and it leads Paul to preach a short uh, kind of emergency sermon. Do you have an emergency like sermon testimony you can give, you know, real quickly? This is what Paul, Paul does. He's got to respond quickly. It's only about three verses. And let's walk through it. The very first thing he says to him is, we are men just like you, so stop the madness. See here how, how Paul, he doesn't look at these people and look down on them. They're pagans. They're uneducated. They don't know anything. Paul says we're all equal under God. This highly educated man speaking to illiterate people. This Jewish man speaking to pagan Gentiles. He says, don't worship us. We're just like you. But then he says, there is one you should worship. He is the living God. And so he, he focused their attention on the God of the Bible. And he tells them, we're bringing you good news. See, Paul is always talking about the gospel everywhere he goes. It's kind of interesting here. It seems like he never quite gets to the work of Jesus in this sermon. And we don't know exactly what happened. Either Luke didn't record the whole sermon, or I think what is more likely, the mob cut it short. It's kind of hard to preach when you're getting mobbed. I mean, you know, sometimes it's hard for me to preach to you. <laughs> but it's a lot harder to preach when you're getting mobbed. And, and Paul has to kind of come up with something on the fly really quickly. And what he does is instructive. Paul focuses on God's nature and work, who God is, what God has done. And again, he does this by starting with creation. Do you see? He, he's telling them, I want you to see, friends, there's not a God of the air and a God of the sea and a God of the land. There's one God. And this God, he's the creator of everything. What does he want them to do in response to this? Well, he says, I want you to repent. Turn from these worthless things. Turn to the living God. Let me just ask you a question here. Is the word repent in our culture today a negative or a positive word? What would you say? People think it's negative. It's what, you know, doctrinaire, rigid, legalistic people, they're always telling us to repent, never want to have any fun. That's what repentance is about, right? That's what people think, but that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says repentance is about good news. I want to tell you today, it is good news. It is good news to know that you can stop worshiping dead things. Do you understand that? You don't have to keep chasing after all those things that you've been chasing for so long, and they've never made you happy, have they? You don't have to keep chasing after them. It's good news. It's good news to know you can stop occupying your whole life with meaninglessness. You don't have to keep doing it. You can repent. It's good news. You can have a relationship with the living God. All you have to do is repent. It is offered to everyone. That's what Paul is saying. It is good news. And he establishes the fact that God is creator. I love what he does in verses 16 through 17. He also points to God's goodness. You see that? You know, uh, this is a very underutilized evangelistic method, talking to people about the goodness of God in everyday life and moving from that goodness into the gospel. Do you ever do that? This is what Paul models for us here. In the NIV, it says, it says that God has shown kindness. Literally in Greek, it, it says he did good. God did good, Paul says. By giving you rain from heaven and crops in their seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and joy. Do you see what Paul is doing here? I, I, I wish we knew this scene. I kind of imagine that maybe Paul gestured towards some snow-capped mountains, pointing out their beauty. Or, or maybe he, he pointed their attention to some gardens or maybe an orchard of some kind closer by. Maybe he said to them, who made it rain last night? God. Who caused the crops to grow? God. Who lifts your spirits? You see, he's just 
pointing to the goodness of God in everyday life. And he's doing this because these people are under the bondage of pagan gods that they're always trying to pay back. These harsh, capricious gods that are always mad at them and they never know where they stand with them. He just draws their attention to the goodness of God in all of creation. And, you know, you can kind of scorn these pagan people with their foolish worship of these dead things. But do you understand so many of us are under the bondage of gods that are just as harsh and just as capricious. You're trying to earn enough money to make yourself happy. How's that working for you? You're trying to have experiences in your life, and you think, if I just have this experience, then I'll be happy. Then I'll be satisfied. Some of you think, if I get this relationship, that will make my life complete. And you've been chasing and chasing and chasing and chasing that for how long? And it's never worked, has it? You're under bondage to false gods. And Paul is telling you, there's one God and he created everything and you don't have to serve these gods anymore. You can be free. That's good news. Such good news. Now, we just need to be reminded that one of the ways we show this to people is we point to the good things in creation that God has given to all of us. We need to be reminded. And it's so easy in our modern culture to think that the things that provide for us in our lives, you know, come from factories and come from the store or mostly from Amazon these days. And, <laughs> and we forget where they all really ultimately come from. They come from a gracious, merciful God. Uh, the psalmist in Psalm 145, 9 said, The Lord is good to all. He has compassion and mercy in all that he has made. See, this means that in your own personal life, every time you eat a good meal or you enjoy the company of good friends, every morning you wake up and, and you see the sunlight and you, you hear the birds singing and you feel that cool, refreshing breeze. Every time you see the ocean or you see the mountains or you see a sunrise or a sunset, it's all an expression of the goodness of God. Do you give thanks to God every day for the beauty that's around you? I think so many of us just blindly go through our lives and never stop to consider it. We're such hur- in such a hurry, so rushed. See, all these things, they're all God blessing his creation. And Paul starts right there. Paul tells them about who this God is. You, know, you can think of it this way. As Christ followers, we should delight in the goodness of God. And then we should describe the goodness of God in evangelism. We delight in that goodness personally, but then we describe that goodness helping other people to see who God is. I just want to ask you, do you ever talk about the goodness of God to unbelievers over meals or in other places where where you can together observe, say, the beauty of creation? All of these things in this world are signs from God. They are witnesses to who God is, his existence, his wisdom, his goodness. Psalm 19, verses 1 through 6, says that creation is just preaching this ongoing sermon. And, uh, you know, in the past, Paul is saying it wasn't God's purpose to provide specific revelation to every, uh, everyone about himself and his ways like he did for Israel. And yet, Paul says, God has always been revealing himself to every nation and every person doing this through creation. And consequently, everyone remains accountable to God. Everyone is without excuse in the presence of God. If you want to explore this concept, go to Romans chapter 1, where where Paul talks about how sinful people exchange the worship of the glorious creator for the worship of created things, dead things. Now, some of you may be hearing all this and going, well, I don't know, Mike. I mean, I don't think I can use this approach because So many people today, they just believe in evolution. They don't even believe in God. But I want you to rethink that. We need to remember what the Bible says, Romans 1 in particular, that the reality of God and his existence is planted inside every person. People deny that reality by suppressing what they know deep down at the core of their being. It's part of our sin to suppress the truth. You know, when you hear the statement, well, atheists don't believe in God, you need to remember this. Are you ready? God doesn't believe in atheists. It's true. God doesn't believe in atheists. 
And so when you talk to unbelievers, you don't, you don't need to feel like you have to prove God's existence to them. Paul just presupposes God's existence, and he speaks of that reality. He starts with what everyone sees in creation, and he attributes it to God. You can just declare that. They may deny it, but God, God's pretty smart. And God's pretty powerful. And God knows ways into our hearts ways around our defenses, and you can trust God to take your declaration of truth, faithful declaration, and and, and work with that. So so talk about God's goodness in creation. Talk about how God's goodness is most fully displayed in the good news of Jesus. Our God is good. And let me just add one more thing to this. We live in a culture today that's way more like Lystra than it is like Iconium. Okay? Okay? Most of the people that you know don't really know the story of the Bible at all. And so you're probably going to many times have to begin from the kind of place Paul begins here. So, again, we don't edit the gospel, but we need to know who we're talking to. And however we can find it, we need to establish a point of contact with people. And we need to lead them from that point of contact to what the gospel says. As I said last week, the the point of conflict that the gospel brings. In case you're still wondering how you do that, let me just list really quickly for you some things that all people see and all people think about and all people experience in their own lives. Things that you can use as kind of leverage points or, or launching points to talk. For example, you can write these down. Everyone hungers for love and community. Wouldn't you agree? I mean, you can talk about that. People are searching for freedom. Second thing, that's huge in our day, right? Uh, All around you, are are there not people who are struggling with guilt and shame? A third thing, you can talk about that. People are on a quest for meaning in life. That's a fourth thing. Everybody wants meaning and significance. There are people all around you, here's another thing, thirsting for satisfaction and joy. And you you can talk about that. Almost everyone has an attraction to beauty and creation, right? I mean, it's just instinctive. We see a sunset or a sunrise, and we just kind of go, wow. Everybody does that. You can talk about those things. These are all roads that can get us into the storyline of the Bible. See, the key is, as I said, we need to know God and know people. Now, Paul does this, and Paul's an apostle, and Paul's really good at this, so wouldn't we expect that Paul would have a really great response here? Well, it doesn't happen this time. Paul is preaching, and they start throwing rocks. And by the way, let me just stop for a moment to thank you. (laughs) So far, in 15 years, you've never thrown a rock at me. I appreciate that. And this crowd is so fickle. One moment, they're calling them gods, and the next moment, they're trying to kill them. They're forming a mob. Verse 19 says, Then some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and won the crowd over. They stoned Paul and dragged him outside the city, thinking he was dead. But after the disciples had gathered around him, he got up and went back into the city. So just look at this. I mean, think about this. Paul's opponents from Pisidian, Antioch, and Iconium are incredibly determined people. I mean, you have to be really mad to walk more than 100 miles to throw rocks at some guy, right? That's what they do. They are angry, and they're angry because they're legalists, and legalists hate grace. Luke says they stone Paul, and it's so bad. They drag him outside the city, and they dump him. They think he's dead. You know, I'm wondering here if Paul is remembering what happened to Stephen when he was standing on the sidelines that day. Some scholars also think that young Timothy was probably there to see this. See, Paul, everywhere he goes, he gets beat up. And this time they hit him with so many rocks, they think he's dead. Uh, This is probably what Paul referred to when he said, once I was stoned in 2 Corinthians 11. Some of you have been confused about that in the past. When Paul said, once I was stoned, it had nothing to do with that. (laughs) Just want to clarify that for you. This passage is 2 Corinthians 11, verses 24 to 28. I mean, it's incredible, this 
this portfolio of suffering. Paul says, three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned, three times I was shipwrecked. He says, I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from robbers, in danger from people in cities, in danger from false brothers within churches. There's just danger everywhere for the Apostle Paul's life. And, you know, I think sometimes the tendency for us is to look at Paul and we kind of say, poor guy. But I want you to rethink that. It is more dangerous probably for us to be in a safe place spiritually than in a dangerous place. And if you never in your life ever have to sacrifice or suffer, you should beware. Beware of living in the shire where everything is good and there's no call for risk or suffering. And if you don't know what the Shire is, ask the person next to you. I hope you can understand it. It's from The Hobbit. This just all reminds us to see transformation in people's lives. You often have to experience tribulation in your own life. Now, everyone, they think Paul is dead. They all gather around him. They pray for him, and he gets up. Did you notice that he goes back into the city? Anybody want to go, like, time out, Paul? What are you thinking here? He goes back in the city, stays the night. And this scene just reminds me of another of Paul's classic statements about grace-enabled perseverance in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. He says, we have this treasure in jars of clay so that this extraordinary power may be from God and not from us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. We are persecuted, but not abandoned. We are struck down, but not destroyed. Paul was struck down. But he didn't stay down. Paul says in that passage, so death is at work in us and life in you. And that is the principle here. It is a principle of God's kingdom. Someone has to die so that others may live. Are you willing to die so that others can know Jesus? Are you willing to suffer? Paul demonstrates what it looks like to lay down our lives for the good of others. And, and transformation is happening, even in the persecution. Who is gathering around Paul? It's disciples, new believers, these people from Lystra. God has reached down in his grace and lifted many out of the mess that they were living in. He's bringing them to himself, these superstitious, polytheistic, pagan, uh, hedonistic people. They now call Jesus Lord. And let that be today good news for you. Some of you, God brought you here to hear what I'm about to say right now. It's this. You cannot out God's grace. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. Well, you don't know me, Pastor Mike. I don't need to know you. I mean, just look at this story. This story is about a former terrorist, a murderer, who's preaching to these barbarous, pagan, polytheistic, superstitious people. Do you understand? There are so many people in the Bible who would just chuckle at your little portfolio of badness. They are not impressed. You cannot out God's grace. Where sin abounds, Paul is going to write, grace much more abound. Do not ever think grace cannot reach you. Now, Paul, he goes to Lystra. He puts the gospel on display. Then he goes to Derby. Did you notice it says the next day he and Barnabas left for Derby? God must have done some healing. I don't really know. It's not explained. But he gets up and he walks for 60 miles. He preaches the good news in that city. He wins a large number of disciples. I mean, the next day, it's just incredible. What would make him persevere? How can he keep going? What motivates Paul? And here's part of the answer. It's a big part. Paul perseveres by loving the gospel. Nothing in his life is more important than the gospel. Paul cares more about the salvation and sanctification of other people than his own well-being. Do you want to know how you can persevere in the ministries, the service that God has given you to do? And the answer is love the gospel. If you find that your passion is kind of waning and, and you feel kind of lethargic about it, the problem is that you need to rekindle your love for the gospel. See, Paul could not ever get over or give up on the good news. And the only way any of us are ever going to get out of this idea that we serve Jesus when it's convenient is when we start caring more about the gospel than we do about our own agendas. See, if, if our affections for Jesus 
are fading away. We're not going to persevere. We need to restart our love for the gospel. Now, I want to emphasize one more time how not convenient this trip was for Paul. I want you to see this map again. And I want you to remember, he's in Derby right now. The short distance to go to his hometown of Tarsus. He might get a home-cooked meal. Maybe his mom's there waiting for him. He, he can put his feet up in his house. And then it's another short trip to his current home where he actually lives in Antioch. He can go there, but he doesn't do that. He turns around and he retraces his step. He goes the long way so that he can connect with these new believers that he's made on this journey so far. What is going on? Well, that's the last part. God calls us to persevere Number three, when doing the ongoing work of God's church. Let me read verses 21 through 25. Then they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the disciples and encouraging them to remain true to the faith. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God, they said. Paul and Barnabas appointed elders for them in each church and with prayer and fasting committed them to the Lord in whom they had put their trust. After going through Pisidia, they came into Pamphylia, and when they had preached the word in Perga, they went down to Italia. They returned. They returned knowing that more suffering awaited them, knowing the journey would be hard. Why is he returning? Well, Paul didn't just want to evangelize people. Paul wanted to establish churches so that people could be rooted and strengthened. Paul loved the church. Paul knew that the only way these new believers would be able to persevere would be if they were in fellowship with other believers where they could encourage one another, stir one another up to love and good deeds, do life together. And this reminds us of something many of us need to hear. God has given us a wonderful gift in the fellowship of brothers and sisters in Christ. Do you appreciate that gift? Do you treasure that gift? See, the truth of the matter is this, and I hope you've figured this out, but if you haven't, please listen. You can't live for Jesus by yourself. You need other Christians. Even Paul needed other believers. Now, Paul does three things to establish local churches, and I'll just give them to you really quickly. He, he first of all, wants them to remain true to the faith. That's number one. New believers need sound doctrine. He says the faith. That means there's this body of doctrine that they had taught, all believers today still need to know the basics of faith. And so Paul is imparting that to them. Second, these churches needed good pastors. So we can call this solid leadership. In verse 23, Luke says, Paul appointed elders in every church. See, healthy churches have healthy leaders. So there's doctrine and there's community, there's pastoral care. And then third, he committed them to the Lord. He entrusts them to Jesus. This tells us every church needs an unshakable trust in the Lord. And Paul could model that for them because he knows that Jesus loves the church even more than he does. Jesus is committed to the church even more than Paul is. Jesus loves his bride. And and so Paul says, I'm giving you to Jesus. And, And I'm just thinking that had to be such a hard moment as these people began to realize that they would probably never see this apostle again this man that had loved them so much that he almost died for them so they could know Jesus. They're just looking at him, this war-torn apostle. He's saying goodbye. And then I thought, you know what? They probably knew they were going to see him again. And guess what we know now? They've been seeing Paul for about 2,000 years in heaven together, worshiping and fellowshipping before the face of the triune God. And do you know what that means for us? One day, too, we're going to get to meet the Apostle Paul. We're going to get to see him. Um, I kind of think now that his nose is probably straight, you know, it got broken so many times by rocks. God's fixed that. His bones that were shattered, God's healed those. He, he can walk without a limp now. And, you know, when you talk to Paul, uh, he's going to testify. I told you, I told you that these earthly afflictions They were preparing us for an eternal weight of glory. And we're going to know that's true in that day. It's going to be worth it. Well, the first missionary trip is concluding. Uh, They are starting their initial descent. Trade tables up. Their seat backs are in upright lock position. They're coming home. And uh, Luke tells us they passed 
uh, through Pisidia and Pamphylia and Perga, and they get to Italia, which is the port. And we're just flying over that. Uh, but all those places, it must have been quite intense what was going on. Look at the last three verses. Verse 26, from Italia, they sailed back to Antioch where they had been committed to the grace of God for the work they had completed. So the mission wasn't over, but this trip was. And just so you know, structurally in this, God, in this book of Acts, uh, Luke uh, is giving us, these are kind of bookends. Uh, chapter 13, verse 2, chapter 14, verse 26 are called an inclusio. So this is the beginning and end of the trip. They've been set apart for the work, and now they return back to the church, report on the work. Verse 27, on arriving there, they gathered the church together, reported all that God had done through them. Wouldn't that have been awesome? Do you understand? We just read two chapters in the last couple of weeks. You could read them in probably five or seven minutes. These two chapters cover two years of their lives. They've been gone for two years. And and just to think, I mean, the the story of this little church gathered They've been praying for Paul and Barnabas for two years while they were gone. They don't know what's been happening. And now they're back. And now they're hearing the stories. And Barnabas is saying, Paul, tell them about that one. And then Paul is saying, no, no, Barnabas, you tell them about that one. I mean, wouldn't that have been amazing? Just imagine telling them stories. Luke says about how God had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. And this is good news. God has opened a door of faith. To the Gentiles, and that word literally could be translated the nations. That means Paul is talking about what has happened in your life and my life. That's how we heard the gospel. God has opened a door of faith to us. You know, if you're not a Christ follower today, you need to know this. The door of faith is wide open, and I just want to invite you. Come on in. There's grace. There's mercy. There's forgiveness. There's freedom. Anyone can come in. Everything has been done for you. God wants to welcome you. He's opened a door for the nations to come. Verse 28 says, And they stayed there a long time with the disciples. You can know this just to help you connect some dots in your New Testament wall. They are staying there at this point in time. It's about the year A.D. 48. This is when Paul is going to write the letter to the Galatians, okay? He's just been in Galatia. Where have we been talking about? This is the province of Galatia. And so Paul is going to write a letter back to them to strengthen them in their faith. And you can go read that and keep this, these couple chapters in mind, knowing that these things connect together. So what a trip. First missionary journey. What do we learn? Well, if you're not a Christian, we learn that you should come on in. Grace is available Salvation is free. It can be yours. If you are a Christian, you can learn what you need to do to keep on keeping on. Be strengthened by the grace that is in Jesus. Love the gospel. Love Jesus' church. And God will give you what you need to not give up, not quit. Just keep on keeping on. Would you bow your heads? We're going to pray together as we close this time. Father God, we bless you today. We thank you for your word. And we ask you this morning to strengthen our love for Jesus and the gospel that we can persevere. Lord, will you increase um, our devotion to your church? And I just pray for every one of us here that this week you would grant us many opportunities to share the good news. And, And when that happens, that you would grant us wisdom on how to do it well. And Lord, lastly, I just pray for anyone here who doesn't know you yet. I ask you, Father, would you open their eyes, draw them to yourself by your grace and for your glory. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus. And everybody said.